the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome to Hotel Bar Sessions Afterthoughts. This is a time when the three of us get together and talk about episodes that are already in the can to think about what we could have said, what we should have said, and thoughts that occurred to us in the meantime. We are looking back at episode 79, The History of Philosophy, episode 80, Attention and Distraction, and episode 81, Hospitality. I'm Rick Lee, and as usual, I'm joined by Lee Johnson and Jason Reed. So, Jason, let me go to you first. Do you have any thoughts about the History of Philosophy episode? I do, and it's a little bit of a mashup. Remember mashups of history, philosophy, <laughs> and attention, because it occurred to me when you talked about the whole issue about meditations in the attention episode that, to some extent, doing the history of philosophy is kind of an exercise in a particular kind of attention. Right when hmm. you read a text that's not addressed to you, not relatable, as they say nowadays, and <laughs> takes a lot of labor to figure out both what it's saying and what its pertinence or relevance might be, that is a particular exercise of a kind of sustained, both in terms of intensity and often sustained also in terms of extension. It takes a lot of time. So it did occur to me that partly when we're talking about the history of philosophy, we're also talking about a different kind of regime of attention and the inability to find connections to text and history of philosophy may be because of the way in which we get very accustomed to things that are immediately addressed to us. Like, this is the relevance. These are the things you need to know. This is why this is pertinent, which is how a lot of media and a lot of, you know, journalism is poised. But the history of philosophy, we have to kind of make those connections and it takes more time. So that's one thought I had about listening to those two episodes together, thinking that to some extent, the history of philosophy is also about cultivating a different kind of attention. Lee, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I was really happy about about that episode was that we had the opportunity to articulate why we think the history of philosophy is important. Mm. And I think we did a pretty good job. All three <laughs> of us gave pretty strong cases for paying attention to the history of philosophy. But, you know, upon listening back to it, one thing really stuck out to me, and that was this comment that Jason made when he was talking about how in a biology class or a chemistry class, you know, if somebody comes in and says, let's talk about the ethers, we can say, no, we've, we've disproven that now. We don't believe that now and we can just move on. But in a philosophy class, you can't just say we've solved that problem. Mm. As Jason said, you have to actively disprove it. And I think that that's something that it had never really occurred to me to think about in exactly those terms. But it's such an important lesson that is what we're doing. You know, it is one of the reasons that we can't just list our accomplishments as easy as maybe some of the other disciplines can. <laughs> Mind-body problem solved. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Truth is in the can. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Rick? I've been struggling for the past couple of days to figure out how to say exactly what I have been thinking about. And that is, I wish that we had talked a little bit more about the only words I can come up with are the history of the history of philosophy. In other words, mm. that 
these aren't just figures in the past that are just a pantheon all in the same time period and, you know, speaking to one another and so on, but they have locations in history that seems to be really important when we think about the history of philosophy. And I can give an example. So right now, I'm teaching Descartes' meditations, and during our discussion of one of the Jason, meditations- Jason, is it just me, or does it seem like he's always right now teaching Descartes' meditations? I mean, this has got to be like the seventh episode where you've said, right now, I'm teaching Descartes' meditations. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> all right, I'm back, I think. I First of all, I teach Descartes' meditations a lot. And second of all, right now I'm teaching a grad seminar in Descartes' meditations, and we do one meditation per week. So we're going pretty slowly through it. Anyhow... <laughs> in our discussion, and I forget what meditation it was or what the issue that came up was, but it suddenly struck me that I never mentioned to them the name Harvey, who discovered the circulation of blood, and how incredibly ground-shifting the discovery of circulation was for the philosophers of the period. It had a tremendous impact on Hobbes. It had a tremendous impact on Descartes. And then we can point to other you know, figures like Galileo and the importance Galileo had. And so I wish we had talked a little bit more about how it is that we also need to place the history of philosophy within history and look at it in a very concrete historical specificity. Another thing that I think we kind of danced around, I think we all knew what we were talking about, but maybe we didn't make it explicit, was this trend that seems to have gained some popularity within our discipline over the last several years, hand in hand with the cancellation crisis of people saying, well, I'm not going to teach this or that philosopher because they're objectionable, because they're racist, because they're sexist mm. or whatever reason. And I honestly do believe that there are very good arguments for making those kinds of choices. Yeah. It's in general, not one that I make. But I did want to ask both of you if there was anyone in the history of philosophy that you might say, I would choose to leave this person out. Hmm. So for me, and I don't know if this counts as history of philosophy because I believe he was alive during my lifetime, and I don't like to think of that as historical, <laughs> but Carl Schmidt is a figure who comes to mind that it really does always boggle my mind why, especially in continental philosophy and those in our discipline who think about political philosophy from the continental perspective seem to think that almost every question has to begin with the discussion of a Nazi and an unavowed <laughs> Nazi. It wasn't like an oops Nazi or, you know, someone who disavowed it later. This is someone who never disavowed national socialism. And I just don't understand. This would be like teaching the results of Dr. Mengele's experiments in medical school. Yeah, I would go to the same place. I mean, Schmidt, but I don't really think of in general about not teaching someone because of an objection. Sometimes I just don't teach something because I feel like other people are covering it. Like it's already getting talked about by other people better than me who are more invested in it. So sometimes 
I do that, but that's more of a, a decision within a department, not an overall kind of decision about a particular philosopher. Because I, I don't know, it seems to me that part of the issue is if we start talking about philosophers who've held objectionable beliefs, especially when it comes to things like race, gender, etc., well, yeah. Yeah. we don't have very many left. We could start yeah. naming the ones who didn't have problems with race, gender, and so on, and that would be a much shorter list. Yeah. But I do think for me, it's more of an issue of not so much figuring out who is included, not included, but how you're going to approach someone. Mm-hmm. Like, it's been a long time since I've taught Heidegger in any context, but I don't think I can be as sort of like, oh, yeah, the Nazi thing, that's just sort of a thing, mm. if I talked about Heidegger again. I think now I feel like I would want to frame it more centrally. Mm. Mm. I've taught parts of being in time in a philosophy of history class the last time. And there, the whole sort of seizing history, et cetera. I mean, at that point, you can, that's a fairly like fascist kind of argument. So I think that it's more about how I would present what someone has to say about these sorts of things. Mm. Lee, what about you? I can't think of anyone offhand that I would not teach because they had objectionable views. But that, again, sort of following up on what Jason just said, it would be a matter of putting it in the context that highlighted the objectionableness of their views. Mm. But I do think that there are people who I choose not to teach because I believe that their importance is overinflated or, you know, that they're just like, for example, I would never teach Ayn Rand in a class, you know, who is both objectionable and (laughs) overinflated, you know, in terms of her importance. But I was thinking that if you asked me this question in 20 years or 25 years, so that'll be season whatever, a hundred of our <laughs> of this podcast. But if you ask me that question in 20 or 25 years, I imagine that there are a number of currently living philosophers that I would choose not to include as, you know, a part of the history of philosophy, because I think there are a number of living philosophers whose importance is overinflated. Yeah. Yeah. And if I could just add one more point to this, and we did touch on it a bit in the essay. The essay. But, oh, did I say in essay? Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I'm going to take that as a compliment. You thought the show was really thought out. It was like an essay. <laughs> in the third meditation. <laughs> um, we did touch on this in the episode. And in this, I've been really influenced by the way of proceeding of Charles Mills. Let's just take Kant as an example. Kant, in some texts, says really objectionable, racist things. In other texts, and and sometimes those same texts, he says incredibly misogynistic things and supports patriarchy. And I think that often we have a tendency to say, okay, but the first critique doesn't have any of that. And so the first critique is fine. So we could teach the first critique. And then when we teach these other texts, we have to say racist rat bastard. (laughs) But following Charles Mills gets me to start thinking, are there elements of, for example, Kant's first critique that now can come to the fore as either racist or grounding racism that we didn't see otherwise because we ignored these other texts or excluded these other texts? And so I think rather than not teach some figures, 
that we know about the political judgments, the social judgments, and the moral judgments that were objectionable, I think that opens a way to read their philosophy as a whole in really interesting ways. then our next essay, (laughs) our next episode was Attention and Distraction, episode 80. Jason, I'm going to go to you. Do you have some afterthoughts about that? Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things I thought about, which I wish we talked about, is the way in which forms of media can sometimes lead to a kind of synchronization of attention where we all pay attention to the same thing. And one of the things I find interesting about that is very often the attention is really empty in terms of any real content. Like my best example of this is whenever there's a horrible mass shooting or whatever, right? All cameras go to that spot, but no one knows anything Mm -hmm. um, because we don't know who the person was or what was going on. But yet there's a kind of focus on the event, but not in a way that discloses anything. And I find those moments to be really telling about precisely what is lost when we let our attention be focused for us, because the extreme synchronization leads to a kind of evacuation of any possible thing to say or to know. I don't stick around for election results anymore because no one knows anything. Why subject yourself to watching that unfold? Better go read a book and wake up in the morning and find out what happened because (laughs) you'd be better rewarded by taking your attention away from to make a nod to white noise, we talked about in that episode, this sort of mass airborne attention event or whatever you want to call <laughs> right. it, which sort of has the same kind of effect in the sense that it kills any ability to reflect and forces us to all look and wait sometimes, right? That's the other thing that makes those moments unbearable, especially when it comes to events that are horrible. We wait to find out just how bad is it going to be? Mm-hmm. You know, what's the news? Who did this? What were they trying to do? And that sort of moment of anticipation is, I don't know, I think an interesting thing to think about in terms of the politics of attention. Yeah. There's a great episode of The Office where there's a chase in pursuit of the Scranton Strangler that I think illustrates this very much. And I think it's Michael who at one point says, I will never forget where I was when they apprehended the Scranton Strangler. (laughs) And everyone is just fixated on this event and there's no news whatsoever, except they're just following the car. Lee, what about you? Well, I have a question actually for you that came up after I listened back to the attention episode. But before I say that, I want to tell you both that just last night on Saturday Night Live, Pedro Pascal was the celebrity host. And they did this skit, which was kind of like a Hollywood game show. And they were, you know, asking people questions about films and television shows throughout the decades. The gimmick was that anytime they asked them anything about the 2020s, no one knew the answer. So we knew all these like details about films and television shows and songs from past eras. But at one point they said, can you just name five movies in the last year? And people were like, oh, five, you know, <laughs> Top Gun. And then, you know, it's kind of, kind of drew a blank after that. It made me think... One, when we've talked about this before on this episode, there's just so much out there, right? Right. There's so much content that it's hard to 
pay the same kind of attention to everything. And I mean, attention like that would result in me being able to recall whatever it was that I was paying attention to. I think that's one thing that we maybe didn't really talk enough about. Mm. How do we measure when we're paying attention or if we were paying attention? It seems like one of the ways that we measure that is, you know, can I recall it afterwards? (laughs) And, And I've seen so many TV shows and so many movies in the last 10 years that I honestly, you know, if you asked me to name five or 10, I probably couldn't. (laughs) Although I could tell you easily 10 movies that I saw while I was in sixth grade. So anyway, I just thought that that was kind of interesting. I mean, it was actually a really brilliant SNL sketch, but I did have a question for you, Rick, which is that in that episode, I was, I think, trying to argue that I can multitask. You know, I was saying like, you know, I can be behind three screens and be dividing my attention between three different things. And you made a comment where you said that studies show that we can't actually multitask. And like, where's the evidence? You know, like, what are those studies and what have they shown? (laughs) So you caught me out a little bit, but we'll drop the information in the show notes because I do know it was a psychologist at Stanford University. That was the study that the article I had read was centered around. And since then, I've gone back and looked at his study. And what he showed is not really that, well, I guess it depends on what we mean by multitask. But what he showed is that multitasking is in fact way less efficient than monotasking. And the reason is because none of the tasks are done as well as they could be if one were monotasking. And that gets to the extent that frequently one has to go back again and touch up or even redo one or more of the tasks that one was doing when they were multitasking. There is another study that also does the same kind of test you were looking at, Lee, namely, what does the recall look like when Mm -hmm. someone is multitasking? And sometimes they can't even recall what they were doing. So you could imagine if I'm reading a book and listening to the radio and, I don't know, looking at TikTok, that, you know, I might not be able to remember what was in the book or what TikTok video I was watching or whatever. But if I were fixing my car while listening to the radio and talking to my neighbor, then at least I would remember, oh, I was fixing my car. I'm not sure if I read the same study, but some of the things I've read were not too far from the way we talked about attention in terms of intensity. Like some of the studies I said, you're fine. If if you are doing a kind of repetitive low attention activity like stirring risotto, you can completely listen to a podcast and do those two things because one is repetitive and the other demands some kind of attention. The tricky part comes when you're trying to multitask amongst multiple things that involve an intense level of attention. The second thing I want to say about that, which I think is going back to the multiple screens, is I've also seen articles talk about how like Netflix designed some of its shows to work at a low degree of attention. They Mm -hmm. design a lot of their shows, so most of the plot is driven by dialogue, so you don't need to be looking up at all times, so you can hear what's happening and not have to always see what's happening, or if there is something you need to see, the musical cues will work that you'll draw your attention to the camera at that moment. So Netflix actually plans for a kind of low degree of attention as part of their design. So I also wonder in terms of talking about this is like maybe we can pay attention to more things because the things that we pay attention to 
are kind of designed to live in this sort of attention ecology mm. of multitasks. In the same way that social media, as we discussed, has all kinds of little indicators that draw our attention, to bring that into the foreground, the show we might be watching might be designed to kind of go into the background. Right. You know? hmm. So we haven't become smarter. Content has become dumber. <laughs> well, I think another angle to this too is sort of how we think about what a task is. So, mm. you know, Rick said it's more efficient to monotask than to multitask, but I'm not sure there is such a thing as a monotask. For example, cooking. I mean, I call cooking dinner a single task but I have to multitask sure. in order to cook dinner, mm -hmm. right? And I have to pay attention to a lot of different things at once. You know, so I don't know. I'm I'm still, you know, studies notwithstanding, <laughs> I'm still somewhat <laughs> unconvinced by this claim that we can't and don't multitask. Your example of cooking dinner, I think, is a really interesting one. And so here I have no information, but it just makes me wonder if the fact that all these things you're paying attention to are leading toward one goal or purpose, or to drop the term we use in philosophy, one telos, that that helps us focus on multiple things at one time. But I have to say that I am a Johnny-come-lately to the importance of doing a mise en place before one starts cooking, precisely because of this lack of being able to pay attention. So I've burned too many things while chopping an onion or something is boiled <laughs> over while I'm peeling garlic. So yeah. Re-listening made me think about another issue that is along these same kinds of lines. Going back to the example of white noise, suddenly when that came up in the episode, it struck me that sometimes there are events that seem to be demanding our attention because they're on every cable network, you know, all over the internet and so on. And yet, because there are so many of these, they simply do just become white noise. And urgency has become a kind of white noise in our lives. Or we're in constant urgent mode. And I feel like, you know, when Lee and I talk about why I don't use um, Twitter, I couldn't even think of the name of it, why I don't use Twitter, <laughs> it's precisely because everything seems so fucking urgent. And I just can't deal with that. It just like discombobulates my head. There's a way in which urgency now is the kind of white noise in which we live. And everything is a blah, blah, airborne event. So then the last episode we're thinking about afterwards is episode 81 on hospitality. Lee, I'll go back to you. Have you thought about it afterwards? First of all, what a privilege to even have that conversation with Michael Noss. Yeah. I mean, he is just so brilliant and such a good conversationalist. And I'm so glad that he did that with us. I'm not sure that, you know, that said, that he said anything that I was surprised by. I right. mean, I think that it was largely 
my understanding of Derrida's understanding of hospitality. I do think, however, though, that his trope of staying in the doorway, the threshold Mm. of this question of hospitality is a really important one. And it occurs to me, and this is kind of pairing this episode with our episode on attention, that I'm not sure that we often hear the knock a lot of times, Mm -hmm. right? You know, it's like things are just kind of reaching in and grabbing us by the scruff of the neck and saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And we don't take the time to make a decision to invite something in or not. You know, it's like everything's just barging in. Mm -hmm. Jason, how about you? At the end of the episode, he mentioned, you know, his sort of reticence to come into our virtual space to be our guest and how he's kind of nervous about it, but he appreciated how we treated him. And it made me think, you know, one of the things I'm trying to learn how to do in terms of being relatively new to podcasting is being both a good host to our guests, but also recognizing that in some sense, we are a guest too, right? To our listeners, right? They have decided Mm -hmm. to let us into their ear holes for a few minutes a day. <laughs> and, you know, and there is a sense in which sometimes we feel like we want to help the person speak who's our guest because that's the right thing to do. But I mean, at least me, I'm also thinking about our audience at the same time. You know, is, is this getting a little too in the weeds? Should we, you know, pull them? How should we negotiate the fact that we have a guest and we have the guest because they do have a particular kind of knowledge, something they've thought about at length, and we want to hear what that is, but we also, we try to do on this show is be relatively accessible. I mean, we get a little bit inside baseball sometimes. The thing I thought about is is the challenge of being both a guest and a host at the same time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that we probably don't emphasize enough that one of the tools of our trade is disagreement. And a disagreement is not the same as attacking someone. And I think we never want to attack a guest, nor do we want to attack our listeners. But I worry sometimes that I stray too far into not attacking means not disagreeing. Mm. And that's not doing a service to anyone. Yeah. I do like that comment that Michael made when he was saying, you know, thank you for inviting or, or he thanked us for inviting him into our web home. And he said, you know, I don't think you own the internet any more than I own the internet. And I, you know, like, honestly, in my head, I was like, oh, I do own the internet a little bit more than you own the internet. <laughs> Sorry, Michael. <laughs> Michael Nas is even more unplugged from the interwebs than I am. So yeah. he is the least connected human being I know, and decidedly so, and proudly so. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I had been thinking in relation to that episode about an earlier episode as well, but in a strange way, it brought me back to our bars episode. And it brought me Hmm. back to that episode because I started then thinking about the way in which the unique space that the bar is presents unique ways that hospitality is shown and not shown. People are knocking and the owner or the staff in the bar could either answer that knock or not. And most often when they don't, I trust their judgment because this is not the first drunk they've seen and they're, you know, this is, they're used (laughs) to dealing with this. But I, I started thinking about how interesting it is to think about hospitality 
in relation to these sort of private public spaces or, you know, private open spaces, how hospitality functions there, because it's not a home and it's not a state, right? And so I think it would have been interesting, especially because I have spent a lot of time in bars with Michael. It would have been nice to ask him to think about this together with Mm. us a little bit. But aren't bars still a part of like what we were calling the hospitality industry? I mean, yeah, of course, bars are going to try to make you feel welcome, right? Like try to make you feel like hospitality is being extended to you. But it's a service, right? It's an economic relationship. It is a service, but I guess I wasn't thinking about it so much in terms of you know, the goods and services that are provided in a bar, but more, which came up often in our episode on bars, the sort of everyone knows your name aspect of it, you know, mm-hmm. that that's something that maybe the bar itself doesn't provide. It's it's something that's provided by the bar and who goes there. It's a, a little bit more amorphous than just the sort of transactional nature. But I do take your point, Lee, that I don't want to act as if someone with whom I have a commercial relation is therefore my friend when they're nice to me. But I think bars cultivate a certain kind of specificity that a lot of the hospitality industry lacks in the sense that bars are of a particular type. They're either a a noisy, rowdy bar or they're a more quiet kind of bar. They attract those particular customers to kind of attract more of those particular customers, right? I feel like the hospitality industry, I mean, there obviously there are boutique hotels and high-end hotels, but like a hotel has a kind of genericness to it. You know, last time when I was at SPEP in College Station, like I was in line to check in and behind me was, uh, I think, a girls lacrosse team or something, right? The, <laughs> and like philosophers and girls lacrosse team, like all those things can, they can, even though people have very different ideas, like they were excited to hit the pool and I was you know, all ready to just go to my room, but they can welcome all sorts of people. That's part of how they function. Whereas a bar, I think, by definition, wants only a particular type of person to be welcome. Right? They want to welcome a kind of person so that they can be welcoming to another of the same kind of person. That hotel, and I also think about the Penn Stater where SPEP was held last time. It was held in State College, Pennsylvania. Those are hotels that the aesthetic is developed solely on the rule that no one will be offended by anything in here. The colors are inoffensive. The artworks and quotes are (laughs) inoffensive. Everything is designed so that it's not for anyone. No one's going to be more welcome than anyone else. No one's going to be more upset than anyone else. I think we would all recognize that that's not real hospitality, right? Like a door that's just always open to anyone. No one's extending hospitality there. And I wonder if we can imagine, you know, the opposite of that, sort of the door that's always closed. I'll I'll tell you why I'm asking this is because recently I was talking with my students about some of the protests that had been happening in Memphis. And one of them mentioned how intimidating the police look. Mm. Like a policeman in the United States to me is the picture of inhospitable. Yeah. You are mm. not going to be extended hospitality. Like the door is locked. And I wonder if in a way they're, I mean, you know, it's hard when you're talking about like a hotel manager and a policeman to say that they're equally offensive, <laughs> but just in terms of dispositions, they are in a way equally offensive. Mm. I suppose what I'm trying to say is that I think we really have to take seriously 
how bad it is to always have the door open as much as we do, how bad it is to always have the door closed. Yeah, and you did make this point in the episode, Lee, that it's not hospitality if the hospitality is not offered to you, you specifically. And so the door that's always open, if everyone's welcome, then actually no one is welcome. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting point. The other thing I thought about in relation to the hospitality episode is how hospitable all of our listeners who support us on Patreon have been to us throughout the time. (laughs) I see what you did there. (laughs) I mean, in all seriousness, it really is an act of hospitality moving in the direction of unconditioned hospitality. We really do appreciate all of you, and we appreciate any support that any of you who are not already supporters can give us. You can go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. We won't be recording another episode of Afterthoughts until we've had three episodes out for everyone to listen to, but we have some great episodes coming up, materialism, influencers, influencer culture, and with special guest Sophie Lewis, abolish the family. So stay tuned for more riveting, <laughs> hospitable, <laughs> hospitable, attention grabbing, attention grabbing, and influential yes. <laughs> content. And by the way, you don't just have to listen to our afterthoughts. We'd like to hear your afterthoughts. So go ahead and hit us on Twitter or on our webpage, and we'd love to hear what you thought about our episodes. All right, guys, I'm going to call us a cab and we can roll on out of here. Thank you, Lee. How hospitable of you. (laughs) It's my internet. (laughs) Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.